Chapter Twenty Nine of Wives and Daughters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter Twenty Nine Bush Fighting. During all the months that had elapsed since Mrs. Hamley's death, Molly had wondered many a time about the secret she had so unwittingly become possessed of that last day in the hall library. It seemed so utterly strange and unheard of a thing to her inexperienced mind that a man should be married and yet not live with his wife, that a son should have entered into the holy state of matrimony without his father's knowledge. And without being recognized as the husband of someone known or unknown by all those with whom he came in daily contact, that she felt occasionally as if that little ten minutes of revelation must have been a vision in a dream. Both Roger and Osborne had kept the most entire silence on the subject ever since. Not even a look or a pause betrayed any allusion to it. It even seemed to have passed out of their thoughts. There had been the great sad event of their mother's death to fill their minds on the next occasion of their meeting Molly. And since then, long pauses of intercourse had taken place, so that she sometimes felt as if each of the brothers must have forgotten how she had come to know their important secret. She often found herself entirely forgetting it, but perhaps the consciousness of it was present to her unawares, and enabled her to comprehend the real nature of Osborne's feelings toward Cynthia. At any rate, she never for a moment had supposed that his gentle, kind manner toward Cynthia was anything but the courtesy of a friend. Strange to say, in these latter days, Molly had looked upon Osborne's relation to herself as pretty much the same as that in which at one time she had considered Rogers, and she thought of the former as of someone as nearly a brother both to Cynthia and herself, as any young man could well be whom they had not known in childhood, and who was in no wise related to them. She thought that he was very much improved in manner, and probably in character by his mother's death. He was no longer sarcastic, or fastidious, or vain, or self-confident. She did not know how often all these styles of talk or of behavior were put on to conceal shyness or consciousness and avail the real self from strangers. Osborne's conversation and ways might very possibly have been just the same as before, had he been thrown amongst new people. But Molly only saw him in their own circle, in which he was on terms of decided intimacy. Still, there was no doubt that he was really improved, though perhaps not to the extent for which Molly gave him credit. And this exaggeration on her part arose very naturally from the fact that he, perceiving Roger's warm admiration for Cynthia, withdrew a little out of his brother's way, and used to go and talk to Molly in order not to intrude himself between Roger and Cynthia. Of the two, perhaps, Osborne preferred Molly. To her he needed not to talk if the mood was not on him. They were on those happy terms where silence is permissible, 
and where efforts to act against the prevailing mood of the mind are not required. Sometimes, indeed, when Osborne was in the humor to be critical and fastidious as of yore, he used to vex Roger by insisting upon it that Molly was prettier than Cynthia. "'You mark my words, Roger. Five years hence, the beautiful Cynthia's red and white will have become just a little coarse, and her figure will have thickened, while Molly's will only have developed into more perfect grace. I don't believe the girl is done growing yet.' I am sure she is taller than when I first saw her last summer. Miss Kirkpatrick's eyes must always be perfection. I cannot fancy any could come up to them. Soft, grave, appealing, tender, and such a heavenly color. I often try to find something in nature to compare them to. They are not like violets. That blue in the eyes is too like physical weakness of sight. They are not like the sky. That color has something of cruelty in it. Come, don't go on trying to match her eyes as if you were a draper, and they a bit of ribbon. Say at once her eyes are lodestars, and have done with it. I set up Molly's gray eyes and curling black lashes, long odds above the other young woman's. But, of course, it's all a matter of taste. And now both Osborne and Roger had left the neighborhood, in spite of all that Mrs. Gibson had said about Roger's visits being ill-timed and intrusive. She began to feel as if they had been a very pleasant variety, now they had ceased altogether. He brought in a whiff of a new atmosphere from that of Hollingford. He and his brother had always been ready to do numberless little things which only a man can do for women small services which Mr. Gibson was always too busy to render. For the good doctor's business grew upon him. He thought that this increase was owing to his greater skill and experience, and he would probably have been mortified if he could have known how many of his patients were solely biased in sending for him by the fact that he was employed at the towers. Something of this sort must have been contemplated in the low scale of payment adopted long ago by the Cumner family. Of itself, the money he received for going to the towers would hardly have paid him for horse-flesh. But then, as Lady Cumnor in her younger days had worded it, It is such a thing for a man, just setting up in practice for himself, to be able to say he attends at this house. So the prestige was tacitly sold and paid for. But neither buyer nor seller defined the nature of the bargain. On the whole, it was as well that Mr. Gibson spent so much of his time from home. He sometimes thought so himself when he heard his wife's plaintive fret or pretty babble over totally indifferent things, and perceived of how flimsy a nature were all her fine sentiments. Still, he did not allow himself to repine over the step he had taken. He willfully shut his eyes and waxed up his ears to many small things, that he knew would have irritated him if he had attended to them. And in his solitary rides, he forced himself to dwell on the positive advantages that he had accrued to him and his through his marriage. He had obtained an unexceptional chaperone, if not a tender mother, for his little girl, a skillful manager of his formerly disorderly household, a woman who was graceful and pleasant to look at, for the head of his table. 
Moreover, Cynthia reckoned for something in the favorable side of the balance. She was a capital companion for Molly, and the two were evidently very fond of each other. The feminine companionship of the mother and daughter was agreeable to him as well as to his child. When Mrs. Gibson was moderately sensible and not over-sentimental, he mentally added, and then he checked himself, for he would not allow himself to become more aware of her faults and foibles by defining them. At any rate, she was harmless and wonderfully just to Molly for a stepmother. She piqued herself upon this indeed, and would often call attention to the fact of her being unlike other women in this respect. Just then, sudden tears came into Mr. Gibson's eyes, as he remembered how quiet and undemonstrative his little Molly had become in her general behavior to him. But how once or twice, when they had met upon the stairs, or were otherwise unwitnessed, she had caught him and kissed him, hand or cheek, in a sad passionateness of affection. But in a moment he began to whistle an old Scotch air he had heard in his childhood, and which had never recurred to his memory since. And five minutes afterwards he was too busily treating a case of white swelling in the knee of a little boy, and thinking how to relieve the poor mother, who went out charring all day, and had to listen to the moans of her child all night, to have any thought of his own cares, which, if they really existed, were of so trifling a nature compared to the hard reality of this hopeless woe. Osborne came home first. He returned, in fact, not long after Roger had gone away. But he was languid and unwell, and though he did not complain, he felt unequal to any exertion. Thus a week or more elapsed before any of the Gibsons knew that he was at the hall. And then it was only by chance that they had become aware of it. Mr. Gibson met him in one of the lanes near Hamley. The acute surgeon noticed the gait of the man as he came near, before he recognized who it was. When he overtook him, he said, "'Why, Osborne, is it you?' I thought it was an old man of fifty loitering before me. I didn't know you had come back. Yes, said Osborne. I've been at home nearly ten days. I dare say I ought to have called on your people, for I made a half-promise to Mrs. Gibson to let her know as soon as I returned. But the fact is, I'm feeling very good for nothing. This air oppresses me. I can hardly breathe in the house, and yet I'm already tired with this short walk. "'You'd better get home at once, and I'll call and see you as I come back from Rose.' "'No, you mustn't on any account,' said Osborne hastily. "'My father is annoyed enough about my going from home so often,' he says, though it was six weeks. "'He puts down all my languor to my having been away. "'He keeps the purse-strings, you know,' he added, with a faint smile. "'And I'm in the unlucky position of a penniless heir. "'And I've been brought up so.' In fact, I must leave home from time to time, and if my father gets confirmed in this notion of his, that my health is worse for my absences, he will stop the supplies altogether. "'May I ask where you do spend your time when you are not at Hamley Hall?' asked Mr. Gibson, with some hesitation in his manner. "'No,' replied Osborne, reluctantly. "'I will tell you this. I stay with friends in the country.' I lead a life which ought to be conducive to health, because it is thoroughly simple, rational, and happy. 
"'and now I've told you more about it than my father himself knows. "'He never asked me where I have been, "'and I shouldn't tell him if he did. "'At least, I think not.' "'Mr. Gibson rode on by Osborne's side, "'not speaking for a moment or two. "'Osborne, whatever scrapes you may have got into, "'I should advise you telling your father boldly out. "'I know him, and I know he'll be angry enough at first, "'but he'll come round.' "'Take my word for it. "'And somehow or another he'll find money to pay your debts "'and set you free, if it's that kind of difficulty. "'And if it's any other kind of entanglement, "'why still, he's your best friend. "'It's this estrangement from your father that's telling on your health, "'I'll be bound.' "'No,' said Osborne. "'I beg your pardon, but it's not that. "'I am really out of order.' I dare say my unwillingness to encounter any displeasure from my father is the consequence of my indisposition. But I'll answer for it. It is not the cause of it. My instinct tells me there is something real the matter with me. Come, don't be setting up your instinct against the profession, said Mr. Gibson cheerily. He dismounted, and throwing the reins on his horse round his arm, he looked at Osborne's tongue and felt his pulse, asking him various questions. At the end, he said, We'll soon bring you about, though I should like a little more quiet talk with you, without this tugging brute for a third. If you'll manage to ride over and lunch with us tomorrow, Dr. Nichols will be with us. He's coming over to see old Roe, and you shall have the benefit of the advice of two doctors instead of one. Go home now, you've had enough exercise for the middle of the day, as hot as this is. "'and don't mope in the house, listening to the maunderings of your stupid instinct.' "'What else have I to do?' said Osborne. "'My father and I are not companions. "'One can't read and write forever, "'especially when there is no end to be gained by it. "'I don't mind telling you, but in confidence. "'Recollect that I've been trying to get some of my poems published, "'but there's no one like a publisher for taking the conceit out of one.' Not a man among them would take them as a gift. Oh, ho, so that's it, is it, Master Osborne? I thought there was some mental cause for this depression of health. I wouldn't trouble my head about it if I were you, though that's always very easily said, I know. Try your hand at prose, if you can't manage to please the publishers with poetry. But at any rate, don't go on fretting over spilt milk. But I mustn't lose my time here. "'Come over to us to-morrow, as I said. "'And what with the wisdom of two doctors "'and the wit and folly of three women, "'I think we shall cheer you up a bit.' "'So saying, Mr. Gibson remounted "'and rode away at the long, slinging trot "'so well known to the country people "'as the doctor's pace. "'I don't like his looks,' "'thought Mr. Gibson to himself at night, "'as over his day-books he reviewed the events of the day. "'And then his pulse.' But how often we're all mistaken, and ten to one my own hidden enemy lies closer to me than his does to him, even taking the worst view of the case. Osborne made his appearance a considerable time before luncheon the next morning, and no one objected to the earliness of his call. He was feeling better. There were few signs of the invalid about him and what few there were disappeared under the bright pleasant influence of such a welcome as he received from all. Molly and Cynthia had much to tell him of the small proceedings since he went away, 
or to relate the conclusions of half-accomplished projects. Cynthia was often on the point of some gay, careless inquiry as to where he had been and what he had been doing. But Molly, who conjectured the truth, as often interfered to spare him the pain of equivocation, a pain that her tender conscience would have felt for him much more than he would have felt it for himself. Mrs. Gibson's talk was desultory, complimentary, and sentimental, after her usual fashion. But still, on the whole, though Osborne smiled to himself at much that she said, it was soothing and agreeable. Presently, Dr. Nichols and Mr. Gibson came in. The former had had some conference with the latter on the subject of Osborne's health and from time to time the skilful old physician's sharp and observant eyes gave a comprehensive look at Osborne. Then there was lunch, when everyone was merry and hungry, excepting the hostess, who was trying to train her midday appetite into the genteelest of all ways and thought, falsely enough, that Dr. Nichols was a good person to practice the semblance of ill health upon and that he would give her the proper civil amount of commiseration for her ailments, which every guest ought to bestow upon a hostess who complains of her delicacy of health. The old doctor was too cunning a man to fall into this trap. He would keep recommending her to try the coarsest viands on the table, and at last he told her, if she could not fancy the cold beef, to try a little with pickled onions. There was a twinkle in his eye as he said this, that would have betrayed his humor to any observer, but Mr. Gibson, Cynthia, and Molly were all attacking Osborne on the subject of some literary preference he had expressed, and Dr. Nichols had Mrs. Gibson quite at his mercy. She was not sorry when luncheon was over to leave the room to the three gentlemen, and ever afterwards she spoke of Dr. Nichols as that bear. Presently Osborne came upstairs, and after his old fashion began to take up new books, and to question the girls as to their music. Mrs. Gibson had to go out and pay some calls, so she left the three together, and after a while they adjourned into the garden. Osborne, lounging on a chair, while Molly employed herself busily in tying up carnations, and Cynthia gathered flowers in her careless, graceful way. I hope you notice the difference in our occupations, Mr. Hamley. Molly, you see, devotes herself to the useful, and I to the ornamental. Please, under what head do you class what you are doing? I think you might help one of us, instead of looking on like the grand seigneur. I don't know what I can do, said he, rather plaintively. I should like to be useful, but I don't know how, and my day is past for purely ornamental work. You must let me be, I am afraid. Besides, I am really rather exhausted by being questioned and pulled about by those good doctors. Why, you don't mean to say they have been attacking you since lunch, exclaimed Molly. Yes, indeed, they have, and they might have gone on till now if Mrs. Gibson had not come in opportunely. I thought Mamma had gone out some time ago, said Cynthia, catching wafts of the conversation as she flitted hither and thither among the flowers. She came into the dining-room not five minutes ago. Do you want her? For I see her crossing the hall at this very moment. And Osborne half rose. 
"'Oh, not at all,' said Cynthia. "'Only she seemed to be in such a hurry to go out. "'I fancied she had set off long ago. "'She had some errand to do for Lady Cumnor, "'and she thought she could manage to catch the housekeeper, "'who was always in the town on Thursday.' "'Are the family coming to the towers this autumn?' "'I believe so, but I don't know, and I don't much care. "'They don't take kindly to me,' continued Cynthia. "'And so I suppose I am not generous enough to take kindly to them.' "'I should have thought that such a very unusual blot in their discrimination "'would have interested you in them as extraordinary people,' said Osborne, "'with a little air of conscious gallantry.' "'Isn't that a compliment?' said Cynthia, after a pause of mock meditation. "'If anyone pays me a compliment, please let it be short and clear. "'I'm very stupid at finding out hidden meanings.' "'Then such speeches as, "'You are very pretty,' or, "'You have charming manners, are what you prefer?' "'Now I pique myself on wrapping up my sugar-plums delicately.' "'Then would you please to write them down, "'and at my leisure I'll parse them.' "'No, it would be too much trouble. "'I'll meet you halfway and study clearness next time.' "'What are you two talking about?' said Molly, resting on her light spade. "'It's only a discussion on the best way of administering compliments,' said Cynthia, "'taking up her flower-basket again, but not going out of the reach of the conversation. "'I don't like them at all in any way,' said Molly. "'But perhaps it's rather sour grapes with me,' she added. "'Nonsense,' said Osborne. "'Shall I tell you what I heard of you at the ball?' "'Or shall I provoke Mr. Preston,' said Cynthia, "'to begin upon you? "'It is like turning a tap. "'Such a stream of pretty speeches flow out at the moment.' "'Her lip curled with scorn. "'For you, perhaps,' said Molly, "'but not for me. "'For any woman. "'It is his notion of making himself agreeable.' "'If you dare me, Molly, I will try the experiment, "'and you'll see with what success.' "'No, don't pray,' said Molly in a hurry. "'I do so dislike him.' "'Why?' said Osborne, "'roused to a little curiosity by her vehemence. "'Oh, I don't know. "'He never seems to know what one is feeling.' "'He wouldn't care if he did know,' said Cynthia. "'And he might know if he is not wanted. "'If he chooses to stay,' "'He cares little whether he is wanted or not.' "'Come, this is very interesting,' said Osborne. "'It is like the strophe, an anti-strophe, in a Greek chorus. "'Pray, go on.' "'Don't you know him?' asked Molly. "'Yes, by sight. "'And I think we were introduced once. "'But you know, we are much farther from Ashcombe at Hamley "'than you are here at Hollingford.' "'Oh, but he is coming to take Mr. Sheepshank's place.' "'and then he will live here altogether,' said Molly. "'Molly, who told you that?' said Cynthia, "'in quite a different tone of voice "'to that in which she had been speaking hitherto. "'Papa, didn't you hear him?' "'Oh, no, it was before you were down this morning. "'Papa met Mr. Sheepshanks yesterday, "'and he told him it was all settled. "'You know we heard a rumor about it in the spring.' Cynthia was very silent after this. Presently she said that she had gathered all the flowers she had wanted, and that the heat was so great she would go indoors. And then Osborne went away. 
but molly had set herself a task to dig up some roots as had already flowered and to put down some bedding plants in their steed tired and heated as she was she finished it and then went upstairs to rest and change her dress according to her wont she sought for cynthia there was no reply to her soft knock at the bedroom door opposite to her own and thinking that cynthia might have fallen asleep and be lying uncovered in the draught of the open window she went in softly cynthia was lying upon the bed as if she had thrown herself down on it without caring for the ease or comfort of her position she was very still and molly took a shawl and was going to place it over her when she opened her eyes and spoke is that you dear don't go i like to know that you are there so she shut her eyes again and remained quite quiet for a few minutes longer then she started up into a sitting posture pushed her hair away from her forehead and burning eyes and gazed intently at molly do you know what i've been thinking dear said she i think i've been long enough here and that i had better go out as a governess cynthia what do you mean asked molly aghast you've been asleep you've been dreaming you're overtired she continued sitting down on the bed and taking cynthia's passive hand and stroking it softly a mode of caressing that had come down to her from her mother whether as an hereditary instinct or as a lingering remembrance of the tender ways of the dead woman mr gibson often wondered within himself when he observed it oh how good you are molly i wonder if i had been brought up like you if i should have been as good but i've been tossed about so then don't go and be tossed about any more said molly softly oh dear i had better go but you see no one ever loved me like you and i think your father doesn't he molly and it's hard to be driven out cynthia i am sure you're not well or else you're not half awake cynthia sat with her arms encircling her knees and looking at vacancy well said she at last heaving a great sigh but then smiling as she caught molly's anxious face i suppose there's no escaping one's doom and anywhere else i should be much more forlorn and unprotected what do you mean by your doom ah that's telling little one said cynthia who seemed now to have recovered her usual manner i don't mean to have one though i think that though i am an errant coward at heart i can show fight with whom asked molly really anxious to probe the mystery if indeed there was one to the bottom in the hope of some remedy being found for the distress cynthia was in when first molly had entered again cynthia was lost in thought then catching the echo of molly's last words in her mind she said with whom oh show fight with whom with my doom to be sure am i not a grand young lady to have a doom why molly child how pale and grave you look said she kissing her all of a sudden you ought not to care so much for me i'm not good enough for you to worry yourself about me i've given myself up a long time ago as a heartless baggage nonsense i wish you wouldn't talk so cynthia and i wish you wouldn't always take me at the foot of the letter as an english girl at school used to translate it oh how hot it is is it never going to get cool again 
"'My child, what dirty hand you've got, "'and face, too, and I've been kissing you. "'I dare say I'm dirty with it, too. "'Now isn't that like one of Mamma's speeches? "'For all that, you look more like a delving Adam "'than a spinning Eve.' "'This had the effect that Cynthia intended. "'The daintily clean Molly became conscious "'of her soiled condition, "'which she had forgotten while she had been "'attending to Cynthia.' and she hastily withdrew to her own room. When she had gone, Cynthia noiselessly locked the door, and taking her purse out of her desk, she began to count over her money. She counted it once, she counted it twice, as if desirous of finding out some mistake, which should prove it to be more than it was. But the end of it all was a sigh. <sighs> what a fool! What a fool I was! she said at length. "'But even if I don't go out as a governess, I shall make it up in time.'" Some weeks after the time he had anticipated when he had spoken of his departure to the Gibsons, Roger returned back to the hall. One morning, when he called, Osborne told them that his brother had been at home for two or three days. "'And why has he not come here, then?' said Mrs. Gibson." "'It is not kind of him not to come and see us as soon as he can. "'Tell him I say so, pray do.' "'Osborne had gained one or two ideas "'as to her treatment of Roger the last time he had called. "'Roger had not complained of it or even mentioned it "'till that very morning, "'when Osborne was on the point of starting, "'and he had urged Roger to accompany him. "'The latter had told him something of what Mrs. Gibson had said, he spoke rather as if he was more amused than annoyed. But Osborne could read that he was chagrined at those restrictions placed upon calls, which were the greatest pleasure of his life. Neither of them let out the suspicion which had entered both their minds, the well-grounded suspicion arising from the fact that Osborne's visits, be they paid early or late, had never yet been met with a repulse. Osborne now reproached himself with having done Mrs. Gibson injustice. She was evidently a weak, but probably a disinterested woman, and it was only a little bit of ill-temper on her part which had caused her to speak to Roger as she had done. "'I dare say it was rather impertinent of me to call at such an untimely hour,' said Roger. "'Not at all. I call it all hours, and nothing is ever said about it. It was just because she was put out that morning. I'll answer for it. She's sorry now, and I'm sure you may go there at any time you like in the future. Still, Roger did not choose to go again for two or three weeks, and the consequence was that the next time he called, the ladies were out. Once again, he had the same ill luck, and then he received a little pretty three-cornered note from Mrs. Gibson. My dear sir, how is it that you have become so formal all of a sudden, leaving cards instead of awaiting our return? Fie for shame! If you had seen the faces of disappointment that I did when the horrid little bits of pasteboard were displayed to our view, you would not have borne malice against me so long, for it is really punishing others as well as my naughty self. If you will come to-morrow as early as you like and lunch with us, I'll own I was cross and acknowledge myself a penitent. Yours ever, Hyacinth C. K. Gibson. There was no resisting this, 
even if there had not been strong inclination to back up the pretty words. Roger went, and Mrs. Gibson caressed and petted him in her sweetest, silkiest manner. Cynthia looked lovelier than ever to him for the slight restriction that had been laid for a time on their intercourse. She might be gay and sparkling with Osborne. With Roger she was soft and grave. Instinctively she knew her men. She saw that Osborne was only interested in her because of her position in a family with whom he was intimate, that his friendship was without the least touch of sentiment, and that his admiration was only the warm criticism of an artist for unusual beauty. But she felt how different Roger's relation to her was. To him she was the one, alone, peerless. If his love was prohibited, it would be long years before he could sink down into tepid friendship. And to him her personal loveliness was only one of the many charms that made him tremble into passion. Cynthia was not capable of returning such feelings. She had had too little true love in her life, and perhaps too much admiration to do so. But she appreciated this honest ardor, this loyal worship, that was new to her experience. Such appreciation and such respect for his true and affectionate nature gave a serious tenderness to her manner to Roger, which allured him with a fresh and separate grace. Molly sat by, and wondered how it would all end, or rather, how soon it would all end, for she thought that no girl could resist such reverent passion. And on Roger's side there could be no doubt, alas, there could be no doubt. An older spectator might have looked far ahead and thought of the question of pounds, shillings, and pence. Where was the necessary income for a marriage to come from? Roger had his fellowship now, it is true, but the income of that would be lost if he married. He had no profession, and the life interest of the two or three thousand pounds that he inherited from his mother belonged to his father. This older spectator might have been a little surprised at the impressment of Mrs. Gibson's manner to a younger son, always supposing this said spectator to have read to the depths of her worldly heart. Never had she tried to be more agreeable to Osborne, and though her attempt was a great failure when practiced upon Roger, and he did not know what to say in reply to the delicate flatteries which he felt to be insincere, he saw that she intended him to consider himself henceforth free of the house, and he was too glad to avail himself of this privilege to examine over closely into what might be her motives for her change of manner. He shut his eyes and chose to believe that she was now desirous of making up for her little burst of temper on his previous visit. The result of Osborne's conference with the two doctors had been certain prescriptions which appeared to have done him much good, and which would, in all probability, have done him yet more, could he have been free of the recollection of the little patient wife in her solitude near Winchester. He went to her whenever he could, and thanks to Roger, money was far more plentiful with him now than it had been. But he still shrank, and perhaps even more and more, from telling his father of his marriage. Some bodily instinct made him dread, all agitation inexpressibly. If he had not had this money from Roger, 
he might have been compelled to tell his father all and to ask for the necessary funds to provide for the wife and the coming child but with enough in hand and a secret though remorseful conviction that as long as roger had a penny his brother was sure to have half of it made him more reluctant than ever to irritate his father by a revelation of his secret not just yet not just at present he kept saying both to roger and to himself by and by if we have a boy i will call it roger and then visions of poetical and romantic reconciliations brought about between father and son through the medium of a child the offspring of a forbidden marriage became still more vividly possible to him and at any rate it was a staving off of an unpleasant thing he atoned to himself for taking so much of roger's fellowship money by reflecting that if roger married he would lose this source of revenue yet osborne was throwing no impediment in the way of this event rather forwarding it by promoting every possible means of his brother's seeing the lady of his love osborne ended his reflections by convincing himself of his own generosity End of chapter twenty nine